Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Rewind, which, as you know, means that I am a little bit in a, a bit of a limbo right now when it comes to recordings, but there's still content for you in case you haven't had a chance to listen to the first season of The Beauty of Horror, which was on Anatomy of a Scream. Dot com. So if you want to listen to it directly on their page, that would be awesome. Give their Podbean a little bit of love. Maybe play it on both. I don't know. Because, you know, this version, you have this intro. So let's talk about this episode. This is episode two of the first season of The Beauty of Horror. And I was very blessed to get Jolene Marie, who is costume designer for The Last Drive-In on Shudder. And she was super awesome. I put out a call for people that I had as mutuals on Twitter, I said, hey, who would like to, you know, maybe jump on a podcast with me, even though nobody really knew who I was, apart maybe from some writers here and there. But Jolene and I had already had some contact, and she was like, hey, I'd love to do it. So I dragged her on, and she brought in Ariaster's Midsommar. Now, I know that over the last year or so, this movie has gotten quite a bit of discourse on the internet, and there are a lot of different camps about, or at least, you know, camps in, in regards to people's feelings about whether this movie is problematic or empowering or both or neither or whatever. And I love that about this film is that it is a film that makes you feel something. Even even the nothingness that it might make you feel if you just go, I can't get through this movie, which, you know, some of my favorite people feel that way. And I totally get where you're coming from. If you can't relate to the people who are in this film and why would you want to? They're all kind of really waspy, privileged people. Uh, I kind of get why you're like, I don't I don't need to spend time with this. And you would be right. So I totally understand where you're coming from there. And anybody who is kind of stuck in this whole, is it a good for her movie or is it not a good for her movie? I think that's a very interesting debate considering it really depends on the viewpoint that you have, which is kind of the whole point of the podcast. That's why I find it such an interesting film to discuss in general is just to see where people are coming from and why they feel the way they feel as opposed to maybe caring too much about how I feel about it one way or the other. This particular conversation kind of goes into that good for her territory. We discussed a lot of those aspects of it, but we obviously do get into this cult and the horror of it all and why, especially with the director's cut, which is what we talk about for this film, there's a lot more to it that makes it even more sinister and, and kind of that cautionary tale against the, the subtleties of white supremacy and how it, you know, behaves and how it really dupes people into its kind of workplace, if you will. So, uh, you know, the, the, story that Danny has going on in the film goes from this good for her that we kind of see in the theatrical release into a much more tragic tale of your chosen family chose you. You didn't necessarily choose them. They kind of manipulated you into the family. Very interesting. We don't quite go into chosen families. That actually happens a few episodes later when that concept kind of first comes to me in a way. So I would have brought it up otherwise. But yeah, Jolene Marie, uh, Jolene Richardson, as you will see on the, the title that I originally chose, but she's going by Jolene Marie. Um, really cool to talk to her. If you watched the Chainsaw Awards for Fangoria on Shudder, you would have seen that she was chosen to announce their best costume design award, which I thought was so cool. Give her that platform to show her face, talk a little bit. I loved talking to her. Her insights as a costume designer and historian were phenomenal. Here. And I think that's what makes this such a special episode. I didn't really know what to expect because she and I didn't really talk a whole bunch. We just kind of liked each other's tweets every now and then and retweeted each other and stuff. But we didn't have any like long conversations until this time. And so I just wasn't quite aware of who I was talking to. And she was blowing my mind the whole way through. And I was so impressed and just so happy and felt so blessed 
while doing this because I was still really shaky, really nervous, and doubly nervous in this case because, you know, with Danny Bethay, uh, they and I at least got along quite well already, and we spoke to each other a little bit in private before, had been in the same kind of spaces as well. So I was excited and nervous because I respect Danny so much. And in this case, it was somebody I didn't even know who just wanted to be on a show and kind of like put a chance on me. And I didn't really know what to do with that. So I was like, oh, I have to be able to really, really host this now. I can't rely on knowing how the other person's going to be in the situation. So I have to really have my format straight. And it's not straight <laughs> at all. And I don't mean that in, you know, an identity sense. I mean that in a, was it straight and narrow? Was it structured? And the structure's there, but it's not quite what it becomes. And as you may know as fans now, like or listeners at least, the structure is still all over the place, but I kind of own it. So that's really the structure. It's like I own it and I make the structure whatever it is that you hear and we talk about it openly. Whereas here, I was still trying to do the thing like be professional, maybe just not acknowledge those little mistakes. So I'm trying really hard to be a podcast with this episode, but still the conversation just led into a very nice flowing conversation because Jolene is one of the easiest people in the world to talk to. And her insights on costume design and the way it communicates a character's state of being and just who they are as a person in a film and all the themes that you can see within a story through the clothing designs, the materials that are chosen, the types of cuts and things that are chosen. It says so much that you may not realize just how much the aesthetics of clothing actually affect your viewing experience of whether you are drawn in towards somebody or pushed away from them, if you can relate to them or not. Imagine if we did have Danny walking around with all of this mass depression and just looking for comfort, but she's dressed to the nines and really nice dresses and stuff the whole way through. I think we'd find it a bit fantastical and, and not very realistic, but seeing her walking around in, you know, these really comforty kind of travel clothes the whole way through and how she just kind of puts less and less attention on her appearance the, as she starts to dive more and more into her emotions. That's very realistic. I think a lot of people can relate to that. So I was really mesmerized listening to Jolene talk, and I hope you'll be mesmerized as well because it's an amazing conversation. And whether you love the film or not, I would love for you to just listen to what we had to say. And I'd like to hear if you agreed or not. So please let me know. You know, you should reach out. We're on Twitter at Beauty Horror Pod still. And you can reach out through our website that was recently launched, which is spreadthebeauty.org. We are still accepting calls for papers. So... What is spreadthebeauty.org? Before we get into the, uh, the episode, I just want to kind of pitch us a little bit, remind everybody, maybe if you haven't been following me on Twitter or the socials, you haven't maybe seen any of this, it is an extension of the podcast in written form. So the website is dedicated to exploring aesthetics of horror in a way that we can explore it for people who prefer to read or maybe just like to do both. You know, I was thinking about transcriptions for the podcast. That's a little expensive. I don't have a lot of time to do it but we could create articles. So we have two different tiers here. We have the main page, which is just like any other website. You go to it, you read it. We're going to have articles from lots of different writers all over the horror world. Anybody who's interested, really, who can get a pitch in that we accept, we'll put you on there. Uh, the way we compensate that, since we are starting off and it's all just my, out of my own pocket right now, we're just unfortunately having to do the whole exposure thing. But the way we're doing the exposure is trying to make sure that the places that you call home, if you are a little bit more seasoned and have other places that you really like to support, we will link to them extensively. We'll make sure hyperlinks are there. We're not trying to shy away from other websites. We're trying to connect everybody together. So we want this to also be a bit of a hub for your work. So whatever you put into your profile, 
We're going to make sure that people can get to it. We have a contributors page that we're working on now. Make sure there's always a page that people can find you and get back to your work. We do have a paid option. There is a paid membership option for this website, for spreadthebeauty.org, which is called The Flock. And The Flock will have all of its proceeds. It's just $5 a month. All of that will go towards paying people for their articles. So you get exclusives that are only going to be found there. Those are more deep dive personal essays and analyses that I want people to be a bit more candid. And we pay $15 per article that we take for the flock. So if you're interested in either of those options, if you're a starting writer who's looking for a place to get published, if you're looking for that early, you know, paid gig, or maybe you have plenty of experience and you just want to have a little bit of a payment coming in, or even just want to help us out with the website, it'd be greatly appreciated. You can get in touch, which is profit at spreadthebeauty.org for any inquiries that you might have, but especially to send in your pitches. Uh, please check out our call for papers. There is a blog post on the website that has all the information for that has all the information about what we're looking for and how we would like you to structure it. Also, visual artists, we're trying to showcase your work. We have an art gallery that is dedicated to showing artwork from digital or just other visual artists. Uh, if you have photos, at the very least, that we can put up on a gallery and all the photos will link back to wherever you want them to go to, your shop, your website, whatever. We just want this to be a showcase of this is the beauty of horror in one place. When it comes to The Flock, there's also more special podcast episodes. Just recently, we released an episode where I sit down with artist Trevor Henderson talking about why we think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is actually a cosmic horror film. So fun things like that are a little bit out of the ordinary will be there. Not the rewinds, of course. The rewinds are going to be just like this. And, you know, as ever, any help or assistance, even just listening to this episode, is greatly appreciated. So thank you all so much for all the support. And enjoy listening to me, not knowing what I'm doing, talking to somebody who is way cooler than I ever could have imagined and has a cool freaking job and a really, really interesting mind. So I really hope that more of you follow Jolene and follow her work and just get into it. Okay, so here we go. This is me with Jolene Marie on Midsummer. Hello and welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I'll sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a costume designer and fashion historian currently working as the designer for The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. She is also the creator and writer of the Hanging by a Thread blog, where she explores the costuming and designers behind your favorite horror movies. And she is the co-host of To Die For podcast, which examines costuming and horror through a feminist lens. Beautiful welcomes to Jolene Richardson. Hi, thank you so much, Chandler. Oh, thank you for being here. It's uh, really exciting to finally get to, to meet you and talk about uh, the things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. Yes, go. you should be. You should be. <laughs> Uh, before we begin our discussion, I'd like to kick off each episode with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic. This can be from philosophy or from the filmmakers themselves. Today's quote is, <clears throat> it's a little longer one, <clears throat> by the standards of realism, the pretty image is too much, but it is also not enough to be redeemed as radical excess. 
not quite beautiful or sublime, it is also not camp or countercultural. I'll reveal who said this a little later. First, Jolene, let's talk about your relationship with horror. What is it that drew you into the genre in the first place? Yeah, so my first um, like draw into the genre was definitely... I have a clear distinction when I was younger of The Exorcist. Like I was way too young to be watching that movie. And it still is something that the images still haunt me to this day, which I think makes for effective filmmaking. So it did its job. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I think the idea of of like being scared of something, but also being tantalized by it, like I can't look away, but also I want to look away. And then from there, it just kind of evolved into, you know, finding – Camp horror. I love campy horror from the 80s. I think that's super fun because camp in itself is a really amazing art form and it yes. takes a lot of aesthetic that people don't think that it has. Um, so, yeah, just the genre at large is just incredible for all of that. Oh, so true. I'm so happy that you brought up the aesthetic of campy horror because it's so powerful and people don't give that enough love. So no. kudos for that. I mean, and like somebody like John Waters, who maybe doesn't do horror, but has made his career out of camp. I mean, there is art form and there is like recognition in that. Like, I, I think pe- people don't give it the recognition that it deserves. For sure. For sure. Now, how old were you when you saw The Exorcist? Because you said it was oh, too God. young. What's too young in your opinion? Too young. Um. Well... I think I had to be about like maybe eight, nine or 10, but I also went to Catholic school. So, (laughs) (laughs) so like growing up, going to Catholic school, I was like, oh God, what's going to happen to me now that I watch this movie? (laughs) Are are you going to be haunted by the demons? Yeah. No. Oh, wow. I can imagine that had quite an impact on you. uh, Yeah. So then how did you get into your career path now with uh, costume design and like, did you know early on that you wanted to kind of get into that realm of horror or did this uh, – I'm just curious. How did this happen? Yeah. So around that time that I was discovering horror movies, I remember specifically watching a program on the Travel Channel about Halloween Horror Nights in Orlando, Florida. And that's like the yearly seasonal event that Universal Studios does and it's right. incredible haunted houses. And I just remember watching that and being like, oh, I kind of want to make monsters because this looks like so much fun. And never really like went into to my years of schooling going, okay, I want to go into horror. It was just kind of, I, I went for theater. Um, I became a seamstress. I was uh, a showrunner and I dressed, you know, off-Broadway shows and stuff like that. But horror was something that I loved so much. And I kept trying to figure out ways to get into the genre. And then unfortunately, but fortunately, pandemic happened. And I was like, well, now I have to mm. figure out what to do for myself. And for my own career and like what changes do I want to make because I loved what I was doing, but it was unsustainable because I was working two, three jobs and not having right. days off and the hours are really rigorous. So I was like, no, I'm going to, I thankfully have a time now where I can just focus on the things that I want to focus on. And that's kind of what led me to, you know, finding Justin and the last driving crew and then starting the blog and the podcast and Emma and I, my co-host, you know, we met through Twitter and through different costuming in horror roundtables that we we did. And so the internet, it kind of like brought me to this little horror circle and then it brought me to you. And so, yeah. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> uh, it's one of those weird uh, things that despite all of the troubles and, and horrible, you know, realities that we've had to face with the pandemic, yeah. I will say that the silver lining that came from it was the ability to, I think, 
through the pain of it all, we've learned a little bit of empathy, at least yeah. some of us have, at least. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and through that, I think connections have been made a bit more honestly and truthfully through the internet as well. So it's, finally, it's about 20 years a little late, maybe even 30 <laughs> years a little too late, but we finally figured out, oh my God, I can still treat people like people, even though yeah. it's just text on a screen. Yeah. <laughs> so. And then there's something catharsis about seeking out horror during this time as well. You know, you read articles yes. about horror fans being more equipped to handle things like this because this is what we we empathize with on the screen constantly. So I think it there was some kind of resilience to us as a horror community during this time where we were just like, okay, let's just come together like we normally do, but we just can't be in the real world. So let's do it in the virtual world. Yeah, exactly. I, so let me get this straight though. You started working for The Last Drive-In post-pandemic? Yeah, post-pandemic. Within last year. Wow. Yeah, within the last year, yeah. We, um, Justin and I were friends on Instagram, and I was just kind of politely persistent and was like, hey, mm -hmm. you guys don't have a costume designer, and I know that you guys are growing, you know, and like, yeah, and then and we became friends, and yeah, and then we started rolling with the, with the job. <laughs> That's incredible. See, there's a lesson here, dear listeners, and that is take <laughs> your shot, you know? Yes. We all suffer from imposter syndrome. We all feel that, you know, right now, like this is my second episode of a podcast ever, and I'm like, yeah, I, I'm proud of myself, but of course there's always that element of like, ah, but who am I? Yeah. And if you don't do the things, you don't take the shots that are given to you, what you can do, you're, you're not going to do the things anyway. You always have nothing. Absolutely. So. And I also noticed as a woman that a lot of men just didn't apologize for asking for work. They'd never apologized for right. asking for money. And I was like, you know what? I need money and I want these jobs. So I'm just going to go out and what are they going to say? No. Okay. Then I'm in the same spot that I'm in right now. There you go. There yeah. you go. <laughs> See, I live in the Netherlands and they actually have a phrase about that. They say, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which means, mm -hmm. uh, no, you already have. Oh, okay. So they're like, what is it? Okay. You go back to the reality that you're in. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of their attitude. That's awesome. I love that. Oh, that's super, super cool. Okay. And so then it may be a very, Typical, simple question. I'm sure you've been asked this a few times, but is there a favorite uh, outfit or costume that you've done for The Last Drive-In? So there is, but I can't talk about it because it's coming up on this season. <gasps> oh. So you will you will find out and I will post about it when it, when it airs. Yes. Okay, everybody <laughs> keep an eye out for that. <laughs> yeah. You'll know, I'm sure. Uh, is it one of Darcy's? No, she actually does take care of her own cosplays. Okay, because I know yeah. she's a cosplayer. Yeah, she okay. is, yeah. Still cool, cool. Uh, so keep an eye out uh, for Jolene's work on the last drive-in. Mm -hmm. uh, are there uh, any sort of like are there any films that you've been watching lately? Anything that you've been getting into, uh, or any work that you've been doing for the podcast you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so we um, we're getting ready to record our fourth episode. We're getting into month two of the podcast, which is pretty nice. exciting. Um, so it's still new, but growing pretty quickly. Um, we've got some interviews coming up. Um, we have, well, by the time you listen to this, you, it might already be out, but we'll be interviewing Tracy White from Tales from the Hood, which is going to be Ooh, really exciting. Sure. And then um, one of my best friends is also a costume designer who loves horror. So we're going to be talking about horror and musicals and the crossover oh. between stage and screen. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and I can imagine just talking about costuming from stage to screen is already an interesting yeah. enough topic when you yes. add the musical horror. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yeah, a lot of Rocky Horror talk in that episode. Of course. You got to. You got yeah. to. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, yeah, y'all, you should definitely be checking out the To Die For podcast because if you did not know or you may think that the clothing that you see in films is just there 
Or you may take it for granted and think, well, there's no way there could be a feminist element or reading to this. Well, guess again, they do a very good <laughs> job having a very highbrow conversation in a very fun way about of often overlooked aspects of all of cinema. So yeah. uh, just I'm in for that. I love stuff like that. We need to keep these little pockets going and remind people of what's yeah. there. <laughs> so well done. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's see. I think we are pretty warmed up and yeah. ready to chat. So, Jolene, what film are we going to be discussing today? Yeah, we're going to be discussing, and this is one of my favorite films, uh, 2019's Ari Aster's Midsommar. I think it is a beautiful film, and obviously we're going to get into all of that, but it is, it's an important film for me because it came into my life at a time of a very tumultuous breakup. So it was, I was like eight months out of that, and then this movie came out, and I was like, oh, okay, I, okay. Just, <laughs> I just went through all of this. <laughs> right. I had the same. I had a divorce just before this movie, so. <laughs> oh, so you and me were both Danny, like in the theater, like, yeah. That a lot of like ugly crying as well. <laughs> yeah, yes, lots of ugly crying sure. too. Uh, before we get to the ugly crying and the beauty of it, in case there's anybody out there that hasn't seen uh, Midsommar, I'm going to give you a brief uh, synopsis that mildly spoils things, but not too much. And just for the record, we will be talking spoilers here because to get down to the nitty gritty, you do need to get into the details. Also, for context, we did uh, watch the director's cut for this podcast. So it was a slightly elongated version of the film, which has some variations to it. But here's my synopsis. After a tragic murder-suicide took her parents and sister from her, Danny is lost and overcome with grief. She turns to the only one she feels she can, her boyfriend, Christian. Christian, unfortunately, had planned on breaking up with Danny the very night that she lost her family. The two stay together out of guilt and shame, predominantly from Christian's side. After a fight over Christian making plans to go to his friend's Pele's Swedish village for a month without mentioning it until his friends talk about it in front of Danny, Christian invites her to join them on their trip. When the group first arrives at the small commune, things seem festive and fun. However, over the course of the next few weeks, they are made witness to disturbing and violent rituals as each of Danny and Christian's friends seemingly disappear one by one. Danny expresses her unease early on, but the acts of friendship bestowed upon her by the commune and her struggles to find peace with Christian complicate an already difficult situation for her. Who can she trust? Perhaps most importantly, can she break the hold that everyone around her seems to have before it's too late? At least that's the, the gist I got from that. I think that this movie is uh, fantastic. I was super excited that you brought it up. I was terrified when you brought it up because of all the <laughs> ugly crying that I had the first time. This was one of those kind of one and done movies for me when I first mm. saw it. My head wasn't in the right space yet. And just the way Danny was processing her grief is exactly what happened to me. Uh, just before and after the divorce, because I had uh, a bit of a burnout during my studies, and then the divorce hit on top of all of that. And there was just those days of just pillow crying and wheezing, and you know your face is wet <laughs> constantly, and just hearing how realistically Florence Pugh managed to harness all of that really got me. But I knew that this movie with this particular podcast was going to come up sooner rather than later. So I was happy to pull the bandaid off. And I'm also happy to report that uh, I came out unscathed. I, Yay! Uh, yeah. Especially this director's <laughs> cut version. It has a bit of an extra plot element to it. That's a bit more blatant than the theatrical cut. So you don't 
if you don't want to, you don't have to get too caught up in the relationship part of it. But I also think that, you know, it's been three years now. So <laughs> I've processed yeah. all of that. I think this movie helped me do that, actually. But yeah. why did you bring it up? Yeah. So it, I mean, not only is it one of my favorite modern horror movies, but just I think the way that Ari Aster can visualize and work with his crew to bring about his vision. Right. Is very aesthetically pleasing. He really knows what you need to be looking at and what where your eye needs to go to to not only tell the story through the words and the characters, but to tell it through the setting. And this one, and it is so colorful, and it's such a bright film. And people talk about that a lot. That usually mm-hmm. horror movies are dark, or you know, dig, especially digitally edited horror movies, they can get quite difficult to see on on new televisions because they are so dark and this one is so bright and it's so happy and like in your face but it's really seedy under the surface and i love that yeah for sure it has that you know there are comparisons that are being made often to the wicker man uh i will say that narratively they do take a quite a harsh turn that the wicker (laughs) man decides not to take you know wicker man still has this ambiguity of "Eh, pick a side but this one's kind of like, oh, Danny, I'm yeah. so sorry for you. No matter what you do, you're just stuck around people who don't have your best intentions at heart. Yeah. And you're right. Those colors. Uh, it's a funny thing. I was watching it in 4K when we we started it, but I, there was a problem with my disc. But fortunately, I had a, a regular copy of the director's cut as well that we switched over to. And the difference with the HDR you yeah. can really see Aster's vision with the 4K version of the film. And that that's that eye you're talking about. He's mm-hmm. an aesthetic-driven director for sure. Like He knew when he made it, he didn't make it for cinema. He made it for the long haul. He made it, right. oh, it's going to be on 4K. So yeah. this has to look good on 4K. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I wonder too, like I haven't – I've only ever watched it in a digital format, but I wonder mm-hmm. if – you know, projecting it on a projector screen, like not cinema quality projector screen, but just like in your backyard or if it'll hold up, like if I just plug it in an analog television, like what would it change and what would it look like on those different screen formats? I'm very curious about that now too, (laughs) especially when you get, imagine if you got an old VHS and Mm. then recorded it onto that and then watched it on analog TV. I would love to see what the tape does to the coloration yeah. And how it distorts it even further. Yeah. Maybe that's the secret. Maybe that's this Easter egg that he's planned all along. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> In those bubbled edges of the of the VHS TVs, there's like hidden yeah. messages. <laughs> I mean, the screen's kind of jittery throughout the second half of the film anyway, because of all right. the drugs they've been taking. Right. <laughs> so beauty can be found in a lot of ways. Now, aesthetically, it, you know, it's a visual thing for the most part. And I would say that. Often the way people talk about this movie tends to hearken to, if we're talking philosophically here, right. uh, hearkens to the pretty more. And that's where the quote I brought in, that was actually from um, a researcher by the name of Rosalind Galt. And she wrote a, a book uh, about prettiness and how it's kind of disrespected in the realm of aesthetics because it's a very feminine form. So Mm. it's considered lesser. It's considered surface. It's considered functional. Uh, It's also considered, you know, conniving backwards thing. All of the negative traits you can apply to femininity, they apply to prettiness. And so beauty is both praised on a philosophical level, but in film is kind of eschewed and disregarded because, you know, we care about, 
what kind of film did you use? And was <laughs> what angle was this made on? And was it a dolly or did you get your hands dirty? You know, stuff like that. And I, in my research and my own courses that I took about this, they really sparked in us this interest in really caring about what beauty can do to you as a viewer and how it can affect your experience with the film. So you say you find it very beautiful. I would love to know uh, and, and dig deep. Yeah. What does that mean to you? Yeah. Well, n- while you were just talking, thoughts were forming. The idea of, of pretty being a feminine, m- more so trait than the word beautiful or stunning or all these other adjectives. And I would agree that this this movie is pretty in, in that sense because we don't all, not just have like a female protagonist kind of telling us the story and bringing us through the story, but there are women at the helm of this commune that are also propelling the story forward and, and perpetuating the, um, the activities that are going on, the different festivities throughout the festival. Um, you know, we have that one woman who is the – the news teller of the of of the cult, I guess, is what you would call it. <laughs> it oh, is yeah. a cult. <laughs> oh, it, it's a cult. Yeah, <laughs> we call it what it is. <laughs> yeah, and so you have this one head woman, uh, and she is is the speaker. She is the one telling you, like, yeah. this is what we're doing next. And she's translating not just in Swedish, but she's speaking in English too, so that everybody can understand, you know, what's happening, and it is there's this warmth to it. So somebody like Danny who is broken and is missing parts of her life and is just trying to find, trying to be held. Like Pele asks her if she feels held, she's trying to find that, that sense of holding that she's not getting now that she's just lost her family and she's in this toxic relationship. Um, There is a feminine warmth to it because the women are the ones that bring her in. They're baking together and they're dancing together. And then it, and then I feel like, like women fight, they just, they hit you hard, not (laughs) physically, but like, they're going to fuck you up and they're going to, yeah. 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 No. And that warmth, that is one of the most interesting parts of the film to me, because I don't know if you've experienced it this way as well. Cause you've seen both versions of the film or just the director's cut. So I've seen my first introduction was actually the director's cut. I've only seen the theatrical cut once and I own the a 24 box director's cut. So I've really only seen the theatrical cut once. Okay. Okay. See, and I've seen, the first time was the in the theater, so theatrical cut, and then now mm-hmm. I've seen the director's cut. And it's interesting to me that my first experience with it was you kind of get duped a bit by the whole thing because of the warmth. You know, like those yeah. readings of it being like the Wicker Man, where you do have a people who are seemingly just respecting nature, respecting humanity, and death is just but a cycle but if you pay attention to the subtitles of the things they're saying in Swedish, a lot of it is also telling all the the dead and the spirits to leave them alone and stay in the realms of the dead. And they're very controlling and right. talking about purity and it gets more and more sinister as it goes. And I love how they use that in a way to prey upon the characters in the film and through the theatrical cut, because they cut out that key scene of Danny Mm. saying, I don't trust this shit. Yes. Because that's cut out. You kind of just get this euphoric kick Mm -hmm. throughout the theatrical cut. So by the end of the movie, indeed you're smiling with Danny, you're cheering with Danny as much as anybody else. And I got to say, I was a little quieter with the second uh, Mm. one because it's like, I'm, I'm happy for you for the next five minutes. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And it's a very high high for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I'm happy where her brain has been able to set because finally we see the depression kind of lift off from her. But the means with which they do it, I think is a perfect encapsulation of what I was trying to touch upon in this podcast. Right. That beautiful treatment with this sinister edge to it. But I don't know. Did you catch that with the director's cut the first time you saw it as well? Or was it a little different? Um, I don't know. I think I just I remember walking home from the movie theater just for for the first like 12 hours trying to really process what I had just seen because yes. it, re- it really does t- take you for a ride. And then the more I sat with it, it was more I, I got a lot of those sinister notes. But also as a woman who's been in a toxic relationship who has apologized in the, in the way that Danny has. Oof, yeah. I know that I want to say that I would be strong, but if somebody came up to me, n- not not to say that I would, you know, like not call people out for killing other people, but like the warmth that with which they approach Danny, mm-hmm. I would fall right into their hands like butter. For sure, same. Yeah. I, I think I can. I think the reason this movie fucked me up so much when I first saw it too is you know having it, you know, a divorce can it was a divorce after about 10 years of marriage Mm -hmm. and we obviously had a lot of time to go through different stages and phases and you know and especially with a toxic relationship and and you're going to have moments when if it's a very long one you have your demons as well and so when i was watching this movie i was seeing christian and just like you bastard but also going i know why you're doing it and you yeah. should be ashamed of yourself because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I've definitely put my ex-wife in the position of her apologizing and stuff. And of course, I, I was feeling like, oh, I didn't want this, but I didn't know where else to go. And then you get you touch on those emotional buttons, right. which just set us both off to just get in those little fights that they were doing. You just hide information. You don't tell each other what you're feeling and you just, yeah. fine, I'll just, never mind. No, it's fine. I'll drink right. the, 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 the weird mushroom tea I've never heard of before because you want to. But- I've also been Danny of just, why does nobody understand me and what's going on? I can't talk to this other person. And it was a very interesting position to be in because most people I've spoken to have, if they've had it, they've kind of had one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I got to say that the shame that comes with it, but the elation of seeing somebody else who gets out of that situation is a very, I can't even put a word on it. It's a surreal experience, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Because I'm split into two when I watch it. Um, although these days I'm just like, I'm glad I'm not like Christian anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I learned from that shit. (laughs) Well, I think that what adds to the beauty of it is, is you're watching two imperfect people fumble through a very imperfect situation, but that's what we do as humans in our real lives. We're making mistakes. We're fucking up where we might be using people in ways that we might in the back of our brains know is harmful or speaking to people in, in a way that we might think is harmful, but we don't know any better because what we are dealing with, like you just said, those inner demons, that's the only way that we can express those feelings. Exactly. Yeah. And expression is one of the hardest things that we as people have to yeah. do. And if you're in a relationship where you don't actually trust the other person, let's, let's be real here. A toxic relationship is usually a lack of trust. Yeah. Uh, and whether that trust is earned or just paranoia, who knows? It's still not going to create good communication. Yeah. 
So even though she she does, you know, kill him at the end and set him on fire, I read that as just an over-dramatization of like when a relationship ends and you go through all of these stages of grief and you go through all yes. of this self-actualization um, within yourself, it kind of does – you have this like cathartic cleansing, the fire is cleansing moment of like an exhale, like, oh, okay, now I, I understand why I was put through all of this. I like that you put it that way, put through all of this, because that yeah. applies to this film so perfectly. You know, she's put through a lot of different things, and everything yeah. is pretty much put upon her, too. Even her mm -hmm. losing her family was more or less done to her. Her sister yes. says, I'm going to do it, and then she did it. Yeah. Ah, it's, that's a great way of putting it. And that metaphor, yeah, okay, that's even stronger for me now. I hadn't quite <laughs> considered it like that. Uh, but I, I will say I watched it again today and I was just so caught up in all the neo-Nazi stuff in it as well that I just love the <laughs> – there's so many different – I think there's at least three major stories going on at the same time in this one depending yeah. on which viewpoint you're in. Yes. And even within those stories, you can choose a different perspective on how to read the situation. Because if you – even just looking at it from the Hargus perspective – which is a terrible perspective to, to mm -hmm. sit through, but just look at the relationship between Danny and Christian. Even they have opinions. They yeah. are still outsiders who are like, these Americans, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even them, like their family structure, they, it, it's obviously wrong to us, but I mean, if that's what you've grown up with and that's your world, you're not going to question any of those rituals or traditions because you're like, well, yeah, that's the cycle of life and this is what we do. And that's it. <laughs> It is interesting to consider, yes. I, I imagine anybody from a young age is going to know what the world has taught them. The only thing I will say I find, I, I suppose, mildly very cinema logic mm -hmm. is the fact that you take people who are young like Pele and his brothers and sisters who go out into the rest of the world for a very substantial amount of time and they don't start questioning the way their life was because they see yeah. the majority that's the only thing but hey it's a movie you need to have your evil cult so yeah they're well, totally I, in for it and not from an evil perspective but i know like here in the states a lot of amish communities and those like mennonite communities they do let their right. young people go out um and kind of explore the world and i mean they're not killing people or anything they're just yeah, yeah, li exactly. living a simpler life <laughs> but a lot of them do uh return to to their homesteads and say you know yeah i experienced this but i think i'm going to go back to farming i'm going to go back to that simpler life so it could just be that they see I'm sure that there are Haggard that go out and they're like, okay, I'm not going back. But then I'm mm -hmm. sure that there are like Pele that's like, this is a beautiful tradition I've grown up in. Let me bring, let me come back. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. It's really, I was more indeed focusing on the, the murder and oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, dragging people from London and stuff because they're going to be yeah. forced into this ritual. I'm sure there's a part of you that would go, um, you know, nobody else just randomly drags yeah. people from home and murders them for no reason. But <laughs> at the same time, they are such an, like insular and isolated community it's it's kind of like a it's a, like a white supremacist wet dreamed uh, to a degree <laughs> yeah where but it, the part of it that makes it so uh, i guess strong for that sort of ideology as well is the fact that everybody just accepts it yeah there's no questioning any of this but there's also right. no control either there's no moment you see them go to somebody who's having a crisis of faith or anything like that. It's all the outsiders who behave right. this way. Astor did a great job of making sure that he built this community to fit 
the well, honestly, to allow that breakup story to take place in the way that it does, I feel. I don't think right. it could have taken place if you had other kind of moments where they were kind of breaking down or cracking, you know, right there. Yeah, I yeah, he did. He weaved a very interesting, interesting story. And I think, like you were saying, if it wasn't in this context of, of this cult, of these rituals, the breakup itself would just be another drama movie. And it, and I yes. think the stakes wouldn't be as high as they are without the, the added element of the murder and the cult. Precisely so. I, I want to touch upon something you said early on as well. I thought that was very apt and interesting for this is you were talking about how Ari Aster does such a good job with working with his crew and working with you know, just the way he aims a camera mm-hmm. to guide people's eyes. And for me, it almost felt like he is doing to the viewer what the cult is doing to the people who were there because he has a wonderful way of starting very subtly to tell mm-hmm. the viewer what's going on. I think a really good example was when they were at the ritual for the elders who were mm. going to commit suicide. Ad- Thank you. I wasn't even <laughs> going to try to pronounce it. I, I live in a country that has a language like this and I'm, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and at first you think it's going to be maybe one of any of the other rituals. You know that it's an Ari Aster film, so you know it's probably not going to be pleasant. Right. But the first hint you get is that the music, it goes from being silent to this kind of slight, not a drone the way they did earlier in the film, but this just little, there's some music going on. And then you notice everybody gets really quiet except for all the foreigners. They're just mm-hmm. kind of nervous talking through the whole thing, but it's not, until finally he's decided to give you a visual and he frames it on Danny's face and she looks up and just looks super confused. And the way he pans out, all that cinematic language tells you, you should be nervous. And I love that he did that because, of course, the scene itself, it really uh, blows away the expectations of how how you're feeling beforehand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But I, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that you really hit the nail on the head with that one. His use of cinematic language to tell his story. I think that he's trying to make sure that nobody gets lost in the shuffle, right. basically. Yeah. And I I always think of that scene, too, in those like overblown whites, like the lights reflecting off the rocks. And they have yeah. these really white costumes that are so clean. And yet this act is is filled with so much blood, but you're in this stark, almost sterile space, but mm-hmm. not so clinical like a hospital scene would be in other horror movies where you have this like white clinical space, but it's just like right. serene clinical, like serene white because you're in nature and it's the rocks and everything. And yeah, he uses that really well to his advantage. It's very textual, very textual. Yes, exactly. Very textual. All, all the different textures in that scene play a role in it. You know, they kind of stepped out of the very soft grassy areas and gone to a more powdery, you know, almost like limestone rock area. Yeah. And the sky is just empty. Yes. I love that. It shows how much in a vacuum they are at that particular point. And then yeah. of course, indeed the, just the bodies. I mean, the texture in that. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? what? Sorry. I was going to ask, what was your first uh, response to that? When you saw that scene, if you recall, I, yeah, I as soon as I saw them up on that clip, Cliff, I was like, yeah, okay, he's going to do it. Because <laughs> I remember 
like sitting through hereditary and being like, okay. And then Charlie loses her head. And I was like, (laughs) oh, okay. He went there. And I, knowing that he goes there, I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, he's going to go there and we're going to see all of it. And I was just like, and I had, I gone to the theater by myself and I just remembered the audible gasps around me and everybody was just like, oh, I don't think the the whole theater as a collective did not breathe for like a few seconds after that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I admire that sort of stuff from a filmmaker, especially if they know they're going to release this in cinemas because Ari Aster knows his audience. He paid attention to hereditary and you had a lot of heartless people like laughing every time Peter would start uh, crying or his eyes like, Oh, he's crying like a teenager. I love it. Yeah. And so you have people who have that nervous laughter. They're trying to just laugh it all away, or mm-hmm. maybe they don't have much empathy. And so I loved how with Midsummer, he's like, I'm just going to make it very pleasant up until a certain point so yeah. that if you're laughing, we have a character that you're aligning yourself with. Who's not there, by the way. Mark mm-hmm. has decided to take a nap at that point. And then he just gets it real quiet and goes, forgot to tell you, you're watching one of my movies. Yeah. Yeah. And then he kind of up to that point makes you feel like, well, obviously this movie can't be that bad because there's no blood in the trailer. He did a really good job with whoever edited the trailer to cut it where there was no blood. It was just kind of creepy, a lot of weird facial expressions. And so you're like, okay, well, how bad can this movie be? Is it going to be a psychological thriller? And then it is that, but world's gonna hit you with this exactly (laughs) and then the guy comes up with the mallet because the other guy decides to take a pencil dive off the cliff the the, the man and you're like oh my god he's and and the fact that it's shot in real time and there's no cut so you're watching all of this happen in real time and the guy comes up with the mallet and then he gives it to the the woman next to her and she takes a swing and you're just like oh my god yes okay so that's an interesting thing as well. There, I, I, this whole ritual really hit me on. I, I'm so feminism in, in the study form isn't necessarily my expertise. So mm-hmm. I, I, if I get my uh, my words through or anything, correct me, make okay. me sound uh, better. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm trying to get at is I noticed the strong matriarchal society to it. Uh, yeah. You already had the person that you mentioned before is kind of their announcer and just you know. She tells everybody, this is what we're doing right now. And this is the a, a pastor of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in this particular scenario, every single time they showed this elderly couple, or I don't know if they're a couple, but at least you have the woman and the man. I noticed that he kind of didn't put the same effort into everything as she did. She was putting a lot of energy and strength and she was grieving the way she was supposed to like crying, but also singing her heart out at the table and the way she flung herself off of the edge. Like she was an angel that was flying through the sky. I love Mm -hmm. the conviction that she did that with, whereas he kind of half sang with her and a little just overly tired and, I don't know if it's because he was a little more frail or sickly, but that that pencil dive, as you put it, yeah. just really sealed the deal. If he d- either didn't care enough, didn't want to die, and was too scared and just did the best thing he could. But I think they showed a difference in how men and women could potentially process this. Or at the very least, another reading that's a little outside of that, it showed to me also the 
kind of barbaric nature of it because you have a woman who at 72 is very able-bodied, looks right. very youthful, had clearly many more years ahead of her to where she could have been a loving mo- mother or figurehead or even the announcer herself for, for years to come. The old man was definitely on his last legs, but it didn't seem like a very fair trade-off at this point. And that's very interesting you brought up that they also hand the hammer to a woman to yeah. take him out. And I do believe a woman's also holding the hammer when Josh gets hit inside the uh, the area with the, the book. I'm not too sure. I didn't catch. I think – so I read that one as um, Ruben, who mm-hmm. is, is the – he's more of the touched um, member. Yeah. I think he's wearing – uh, what's his face? His face, like the kid, the the fool's face. Yeah, but there's somebody behind him that actually delivers the blow with the hammer. So there's three of oh. them in the room. Yeah. Oh, I never noticed that. I always thought it was just Ruben who hit him over the head. I mean, I I just I think the only reason it's fresh in my mind is that I mm-hmm. got done with it about half an hour before right. we started. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and it just it caught me this time for some reason. Mm. I was like, well, holy crap, there's a person there. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of women as well that they catch in the mirrors, standing in yeah. the corners, and. Well, and the women seem to be um, like she, you know, she lures. Uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name, but um, the the jokester friend, Mark. She Mark, right? She lures like a, a woman lures him into the forest to, to kill him, yes. and you know, uh, the women lure Danny away from Christian and what he what they're trying to get him to do by you know, let's go cooking and let's do feminine things and then the the women are all around when there's that fertility ceremony happening yeah there's a lot of female presence in this but a lot of hidden presence as well i loved how Mm -hmm. like you say like they entice danny with well let's just do uh, our our womanly wiles and cook some food when really actually this is the area where we call the shots while all the men do whatever labor we have for them but they know their place it's kind of how that place felt to me is that you don't move until one of the women lets you do that Right. And I think it's subtly put in there and it's a nice touch. And for, I think it is that wonderful bit that blurs that line because on one hand, everything about them is clearly not puritanical, but it's definitely controlling and structured and rigid. It's, Oh, I mean, it's it's definitely not about diversity of race or anything like that. There's a lot of purification going on. But to have it be a very woman-centric and and female-friendly environment is such a contradiction in Mm -hmm. a lot of psychological ways that I think that that adds a a wonderful dilemma to the film. Yeah. I can't put my finger on it. But also, particular demographics are just going to hate that aspect in general, and and I'm happy they were uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) I think, too, a lot of it comes from these pagan traditions are – motherly because you're worshiping the earth which is right. inherently feminine um you're following a moon cycle that has a 28 day cycle 28 day cycle like a woman has mm-hmm. and the the cycles of the earth are full flowing and where men are looked at as more linear creatures of the earth and i think putting women in those positions like that and then uh, you know under that you know all of the traditional aspects like you were saying there's this like well, women can't be that bad because, I mean, you know, women, when we go out in public, we can't really get um, classified as being creepy if we're, if we are actually being creepy because that's primarily a masculine trait or, you know, women don't really commit murders like a lot of, I mean, they do, but not like to the extent a lot of serial killers right. do because they're mostly men. So I think having that maternal 
wash over it. Everybody has some connection to their mother, whether they have a good relationship with her or not. There will always be that connection to the mother that you just don't have with a father. So I think that plays into it a lot. For sure. I I think that's exactly what can create. I mean, if you pick that up when you're watching it, just even Mm -hmm. subconsciously, I think that creates a giant discomfort because on one hand, you're like, yes, hug me, bring me in, cry with me, treat me so wonderfully. But at what cost? Right. What what are you getting yourself into? And also shows how easily those little things of comfort, it can seem as if it's empathetic from certain people, but if they are pretty much sociopathic, you are dealing Mm -hmm. with somebody who has learned how to weaponize empathy and manipulate you. Yeah. Yeah. And you hear horror stories just in real life about mothers who have weaponized their empathy against their children and have manipulated Mm -hmm. them to either make them feel bad or guilt them in some way, keep them close in some way. So there's a lot of that playing into it too. Do you think that's also going on in this particular culture that they're showing? I don't know if it is because of the way that they're raising everybody. It is very, Mm -hmm. it is a community raising i think where the manipulation comes in is the idea of well no 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 it's not your child yes it came from you but it's our child so i think that's where the manipulation like nothing belongs to you so Mm -hmm. you can't weaponize your own empathy but we're gonna do it collectively yeah that reminds me a lot of pele's story of when he's talking about his parents Mm. and how he lost them and i'm sure emotionally as a child he will always Oh, no, sorry, as an adult, he will always remember back when he was a child at the moment that he lost his parents. But the commune has done such a good job of recontextualizing what this means. Like, mm-hmm. But did you lose your family? Pele, right. You are now, you have no one to hold you back anymore at that part of your family. You're the only one who is even remotely like you, but your brother. Right. Uh, and it, it kind of, shows he has no idea what Danny's going through because she really just wants those three people. That's all she needs. Yeah. And I'm under the assumption too, that Pele's parents were probably part of that lottery system and Mm -hmm. gave themselves up in, in that fire. Like that was my assumption. I was my reading of it when he said that he had lost his, and then you, you saw how they were choosing people. I was like, Oh, maybe that's what happened to Pele's parents. It very well could be. I know they say they do it every 90 years, but I also right. don't necessarily trust the words that came out of their mouths about the yeah. whole thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because some of the timeline-y stuff, I, I, I was like trying to follow, but I was like, I don't know. But yeah. Well, plus there's just the fact that, you know, Danny's kind of marked as the May Queen from the moment she stepped foot in that apartment. Yes. He shows her the photo. He sparked her interest in being just, oh, yeah, she's the most beloved person in our village for, for that moment. And of course- right. Somebody who's vulnerable like Danny at that moment is like, well, that must be nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I do have to wonder if a lot of the rituals they decided to do were just to serve the purpose of making her agree to be the May Queen whenever they Mm -hmm. asked her to do so. And, you know, maybe they got lucky with the dance one that she just happened to take the shrooms very well Mm -hmm. uh, and not pass out really early on. Because that's the only thing that I think could have gone wrong. Right. (laughs) But she was resilient enough that they could at least do their little charade and then act like, oh, I fell over and you won. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah very interesting there. Um, okay. So obvious line of questioning, but yes. you as an expert in costume design, uh, what 
did you get out of this film? What sort of language were you seeing there when you watched Yeah. This? So this is actually one of my favorite films to kind of deconstruct as a designer because Andrea Fletch did an amazing job. Um, so we see, you know, our four Americans. I'm going to classify Pele in that because he's westernized. He's, he goes to school in the States and he's he's with these boys. And right. all of their garments are um, – the men in particular, they're wearing blue jeans and T-shirts, just, you know, standard Western men's wear. Um, but their outfits in comparison to Danny are very structured. And her life is so crumbled that her clothing is so soft and so unstructured. And you could really see what they're going through in their life where the mm -hmm. hardest thing that they have to do is figure out their thesis. And her outfits and her life where her world has literally just been ripped out from under her. So she never wears denim jeans in this entire film because there Notice is no that. structure to her garments whatsoever. In And then when you see that in contrast with the Haggard, who are wearing these very light, very bright colored garments, um, all of the linen came from Andrea Fletch found 100 yards of linen, vintage linen that she made all of the dresses from. And then all of the hand embroidery on the uh, front chest of the garments actually mm -hmm. tells you which job and position each person has in right. the community, which is yeah. pretty cool. So like it's all taken from Rune. So it's half Nordic, half Swedish folklore that she kind of amalgamated into these like floral and deer uh, embroidery motifs, which are pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. I, I think that she did a great job com convening with the art team to yeah. make sure that all the art that they put throughout the buildings and on the tables and stuff, that you can recreate that in a way that works seamlessly. Haha, <laughs> good joke. <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> into the costume design. Absolutely. And even just um, when we see Pele working in the garden, like day two or three, um, he's wearing a haggard tunic but he's got his american jeans on so he's got a foot in each world where he's like hey i'm still one of you guys but also this is my family so i think the subtleties and the way she used the garments mm -hmm. worked very well together yeah pele was a very interesting character visually yeah. he had moments where he would tuck in his shirt sometimes he would keep it open whereas mm -hmm. everybody else had a very standard just buttoned but over the waistline just yeah. untucked and he just did not wear it ceremoniously at all. I also liked how at the end of it, he was one of the only people to be wearing a big crown of flowers. And it stuck out like a sore thumb, all this yeah. brown. I hadn't seen much brown in this movie. And then he's just there, the brown hair and the twigs and these, these kind of dingy yeah. uh, flowers there, which is an interesting way to connect him to Danny's giant flower dress as well. I do wonder yeah. if he plans on like making her his May Queen. <laughs> Pro uh, probably. I think probably. that was probably where they were going with that was that she was going to be, because they said that they bring somebody in to kind mm -hmm. of freshen up the blood every few years. And I think she was that for Pele. Right, right. And I love how with Christian, they're like, okay, you're done. You go in the bear. Whereas she gets yeah. to stay. And well, <laughs> we assume. We don't know what, they're, what they've done with That's her. That's true. Yeah. 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 It's very, very textual. Also that she, um, Andrea's husband, I was reading is an engineer. So he crafted um, economically the structure of that flower slug dress. And it it's crazy when you look at the bones inside that dress, there's like piping and 
um, hoops, and then it has this over this green overlay, and then ten thousand faux silk flowers so hand sewn onto this thing and oh my god yeah so like it is very hard to replicate because it was engineered to fit on florence Pugh's body so that she wouldn't topple over but (laughs) it's very yeah it's very very heavy and you even see that she struggles with it in the film too i love yeah did they have to instruct her to just drop to her knees if it got too heavy I don't think so i think what what is so beautiful about what we do as costume designers um is we kind of give the actors that final piece of skin that they Mm -hmm. get to wear. And there are so many actors that say, you know, I didn't know who my character was until I put this costume on. And then you watch them in the mirror in fittings and you watch these characters come to life. So I really think that like probably Ari instructed her to walk from, you know, from this mark to this mark and Mm -hmm. along the way, what she was finding with the, with that dress, with that garment and, and the, just the emotion that it was trudging up probably, you know, brought about those motions, which made for brilliant filmmaking. Yes, it made for a wonderful scene. Yeah. Uh, okay, no, you're right. I, I have a, an acting background myself, and it's true that no matter how many rehearsals you do and how much you unpack and dissect your character, when you put on that dress or that suit or just that pair of gloves, yeah, you are that character. Anything that is very definable about your character. I can imagine for Florence Pugh, she might have had very interesting experience with Midsummer. Uh, I think part of the reason that her performance is so strong is that out of all the characters, she's the only one who's dressed very naturally for her yes. circumstances. I mean, the others are dressed down, but they're dressed in a, you know, a very nice aesthetic, pleasing way. And right. I'm sure there's more to it than, than I could pick up right mm-hmm. now. But I did definitely pick up your reading on Danny is how she's dressed for comfort. She's dressed mm-hmm. in a, I need clothes because the elements <laughs> kind of a way. Yeah. And that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, and she um, she kept Danny and Christian's clothing, even though it was just through T-shirts, she kept them very uh, complimentary and similar, whereas um, Mark and um, – refresh Josh. me on – Josh. Yes, they're, they're very much the opposite colors if you're looking at a color wheel from – you know, those two. So they are quite removed from the two of them as far as like a color palette goes. Mm-hmm. And that really contributes to their dynamic as well. Um, yeah. Not just the fact that you don't see them on screen a whole lot together, but just knowing that Josh and Mark don't even like Danny and want right. Kristen to just kind of step away. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, you know, I look forward to seeing it again just to see if there is also this color change at some point between Josh and Christian. Because mm-hmm. although there's a little friction between the two of them at the beginning of the film, they are still aligned just because they are study buddies, basically. Right. And the fact that Josh is like, hey, look, I'm trying to study and I don't want to hear about your chick all the time. That's kind of how he's behaving. Oh, Josh, what an interesting character. Yeah. And then when you look at somebody like Connie and Simon, who are not part of this initial group of people, Mm -hmm. um, I found their costumes quite innocent because Connie is in these overalls most of the film Mm -hmm. and Simon is in shorts. And he's got the hoodie. So, like, they are literally just innocent bystanders. So their costumes read very childlike to me that they really had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And they are the first two to go, like, and get knocked off, you know, and get cut off. (laughs) And, yeah, their their costumes are quite childlike, which was was a really nice dynamic. That is an interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't even considered it. And especially in the scene when Connie is first told that Simon's not going to be there. Right. When she's getting to the truck, mm-hmm. she does have this 
you have this extra sense of danger, and I do think it comes a lot from how they've decided to dress her mm-hmm. because she's dressed for travel. And as you say, in these overalls, which looks a, a little bit more juvenile. Right. And then you have Danny in the background, who's also, you know, average 20 something year old who's having a comfort day. Yeah. And everybody just looks very vulnerable in that scene, except yeah. for the rather, you know, outfitted and uniformed uh, Harga member who shows up yeah. to tell her that her companion will not be joining her. At the yeah. Hall. And even just the way that she slings her backpack on and kind of pouts and says, well, yeah. Simon wouldn't leave without me. It's, it's, it all, it's like all tied together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So there is another thing I'd like to talk about. And I wonder if this was part of your inspiration for bringing it up as well. And that is the very subtle visual effects that's going on in the background in their magical little world that they mm. created. Are you talking about like in, in terms of like the the magical camera angles or just the fact that Danny's sister will sometimes show up and, and what they're seeing when they're tripping versus when they're not on drugs and... Yeah, more the latter. How okay. There are even elements that way after the fact that they were tripping, if you look closely, you'll still see limbs kind of moving on their own. And so whatever yeah. they were given at the beginning has a very long lasting effect on them. And it create. I mean, by the end of it, it's so blatant that you can't, you know, you, you cannot deny it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but for me personally, that sort of distortion is both disturbing and... And breathtakingly beautiful. It, it feels almost as unnatural as it is. It feels more natural than most of the film to me. And I think that's just if you've ever had any sort of asphyxiation or, or dabbled with any like soft drugs or anything like that. If you've gotten drunk really badly, you know what it's like to have a slight visual impairment. Mm-hmm. And it's such a natural viewpoint, actually, which is a very scary thing because suddenly you're aware of how much nature has you in its grasps and you can't really control it because your brain's doing what it's decided to do. Right. Um, I, I'm very curious to your opinions on that. Yeah. So I've never done psychedelics. <laughs> um, me neither. I'm psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. But I, I would assume that it was – it felt to me like the world was, was breathing, which yeah, I, for something like – so a traditional midsummer festival anyway is about the days, you know, that's the longest day of the year. That is mm-hmm. when, if you want to say that the, you know, the summer God and the Holly God are fighting for the earth's attention now and um, summer and, and the warmer season is kind of coming to a close, even though we still have a few months of summer after that, but it's starting to become now darker days again until mm-hmm. we get to, you know, Yule. And it, it, really felt like what you were saying where we felt like what he was showing us was the perspective of either like if we were a bystander coming into this cult or just part of the the land if it felt very breath like and i always think about um every time danny looks down at the ground when she's on one of those tees or on something because you always see the grass coming through her hands like the grass coming through her feet and it is i mean it's 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 a very interesting image because if you think about what she just went through as far as, you know, she probably, we don't see it, but she was there probably burying her parents and her sister. And so they are now of the earth. So, you know, I wonder if that's her psyche maybe pulling her back or saying like, you should become part of the earth too, because 
you're the last one left or you know, some, that kind of imagery. Yeah. And that, that's what I was touching on as well. I really resonated with that feeling. And I could imagine how comforting, as trippy as it is, uh, that could be for somebody in Danny's position to just feel like, even if you can't rely on a single human being, you know, the earth is a part of you. Right. And how beautiful is that to know yeah. that you are, is at that moment, if, you know, to anybody who's listening as well, if you've ever had or are currently in a deep depression, if you've had any thoughts that uh, we won't dwell on at the moment, but you know, if you've gone to that dark place, you would also know then that it's hard to see yourself as anything but insignificant and it doesn't matter. You know, it's easy to get stuck into that cosmic viewpoint of we are specks of dust in the grand scheme of the universe. But this movie really reminds the viewer that you're also part of that universe and it's part of you. So even right. though a tree doesn't look like you, there's a connection there if you let it. Right. And I, I love that Danny starts to let herself. I mean, we get the flower slug by the end of it. She's right. consumed by nature at this point of the film. Yeah. And that's when she smiles. Yeah. And, and when you see from her perspective, like her looking at the other members with these floral motifs, like on the flower crowns and stuff, the flowers in this in the state of, of a trip um, almost open up like eyelids and they become yeah. bigger and smaller. So it's almost like, you know, nature is seeing you. You're seeing nature for the first time. And it's just, yeah, it's really, I, I love those imageries. I think it's so beautiful. And then to contrast these eyes of these flowers, when um, Christian finds Simon in the barn and he's hanging there dead. He's got the flowers over his eyes. So, you know, I wonder if there's the connection there of like flowers being eyes of nature somewhere. Well, there's also that cycle of nature they're choosing there as well. You know, if you mm -hmm. think of fertilizer often comes from compost and uh, decaying bodies. Right. And in this case, we have a very aggressive image with the blood eagles splayed out uh, in a very yeah. Viking style. But okay, so clearly they didn't like Simon. <laughs> <laughs> but they did at least in this... Okay, let's not say at least. They did also use his remains to provide a, a source of compost for this flower bed and they feed the chickens. So. Yeah. It's yeah, and, and Josh's foot is the one sticking up out of the garden, so he's used yeah. his compost. And then it's not shown in the theatrical cut, but in the um, – well, you kind of see a little bit of it towards the end. But when they're putting the bodies in the yellow house, um, Connie's body was the one flung into the lake. So we yeah. do – and there is a lake ceremony that's in the director's cut that we don't see in the theatrical cut. So um, they pluck her out of the lake and kind of wheelbarrow her, wheelbarrow her off to the, the yellow house. Yeah, I'm curious about that. I read that scene since today was the first time I got to see that scene. Mm. And at first I thought, oh, they're just doing a play. It's all, that's how we're used to seeing people yeah. who hold on to old traditions. If they, I am acting like my ancestors. Yes. And they do this in The Wicker Man. They do the whole performance and they act like they're beheading each other when they mean each other absolutely no harm. The sacrifice for somebody else. Right. Uh, <laughs> and in this case, I do wonder if they were actually going to fling that child into the river and if Danny stopped it and they just rolled with it because they don't want to lose that May Queen mm. or if she just kind of jumped the gun before the performance was finished. I, I can't I haven't made up my mind 
on that one just yet. But knowing that Connie was the one that was eventually used, it's interesting you point out she's dressed very juvenilely throughout the entire mm-hmm. film. So they were going to throw a child into the water. Yeah. I So my first reading of that scene was that it that was the most theatrical out of all of the ceremonies where, mm-hmm. like you said, where it was like, and I'm the answer. I'm this. I'm a ancestor and a ancestor is supposed to say this now and B ancestor, re, you know, retorts back with this. And I think she did jump the gun, but you could read it as maybe they don't want to lose her and as the May Queen, as the new blood coming mm-hmm. in. So they're not going to piss her off and throw this child into the lake. Yeah, uh, especially with her saying, what, what, what is happening? It's that phrasing right. as well. Not what are you doing? What's going on? What is happening? She's mm-hmm. starting to question reality at that point because of the strange performance that they're doing. And she's already kind of estranged from everybody at that point anyway, based on the trauma that she experienced from the previous rituals. Right. Kristen didn't help at all with uh, forgetting her birthday and all that drama. Yeah. And then, you know, saying to Christian, we need to get out of here. And Christian just gaslighting her and saying, no, it's not that bad. Why don't we just say these customs are different from ours? You know, oh, he kind of, yeah. Uh, I, I thought, yeah, at that point I figured, can you blame somebody for being concerned though? I yeah. Just because they have a custom that you respect, which Kristen doesn't respect shit. Let's be no, honest here. No. Uh, he wouldn't have taken Josh's study away from him if he respected anything. Right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we could get into that too if you want. I mean, there's a lot of allegory stuff. I mean, the, the man's name is Christian. And right. you know, there's a lot of imperialistic behavior that he exhibits throughout the film. It, there's no, absolutely no coincidence about the actor they have playing Josh as well, using right. a term such as appropriation towards mm-hmm. uh, Christian as well. But in that moment with Danny, when she's trying to very clearly say, I don't like this. I was flabbergasted how he's like, why are you making me feel bad? What? How is this about you, dude? (laughs) And I mean, that's what, I mean, there's clearly something wrong with Christian that he is not secure in himself. Something Mm -hmm. has happened in his life that we don't know about that. He feels the need to take the role of victim constantly. Even when Danny is asking real legitimate questions, you see it, you know, when they're, when he first, brings up that he's going to Sweden um, and she's like, well, if I was going to China with my friends for a month and he said, well, it's Sweden and it's a week, you know, like he's constantly shutting her down in that way where he's not validating any of her reserves about the way he communicates with her, the way he treats her as a boyfriend. If you love and care about this person, then why isn't he acting X, Y, and Z way? Exactly. And I liked that Aster decided to pick as many different, moments as he could to make that point before we get to the big climax of the film, because there are definitely going to be people in the audience going, I don't see the problem. I don't see the problem. Oh, my boyfriend does this. Oh, I do this to my girlfriend. Yeah. And then, but you're like in the span of a week, how many times can you do this to somebody? Yeah. But also each one's going to hit somebody differently from him taking too long to say, I love you on the phone to him not being able to answer. Do you not love me anymore? To the act of forgetting somebody's birthday, I was saying to my fiance, it's like, I've come close just because I have ADHD. And if I get like, it's a busy period because her birthday is in December. Mm-hmm. So at work, we get real like clogged up. So I may just forget what day it is. Right. That's more how I am. I don't, I know it's a Tuesday, but I forget that maybe her birthday was on a Tuesday. I just think, oh, no, the 12th is coming. 
Right. And it's it's the 11th. Like, oh, crap. You know, so that can happen. But the response that you have shows how much you care for the person. You say, hey, straight right. up, I got caught up with stuff. We're going to make you have a very special birthday, just not on your birthday. Absolutely. Something like that. But he just went. I'm going to get a random piece of cake and pretend that I never forgot it in the first place. And yeah, he makes and so many strange choices. He really does. Yeah. And Pele having to remind him and, you know, and then guilting her when they first get there by saying, oh, okay, well, I thought we were all going to take this together. And Danny being like, I'm not ready. And him going, oh, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Knowing that she'll cave by saying, you know, okay, I'll wait for you. And then she caves and says, no, no, yeah, it's fine. That was it. Yeah. Instead of, you know, he says, I- I'll wait then. Well, why? She didn't tell you to do anything. You could right. just say, I'd like to do it. Do you mind? Right. Yeah. And and she was, I think, ready for him to do that without her. Yeah. But, but she, and she was probably willing to let him do that without her. And, you know, but she just needed that moment. But there, there, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of moments with Christian that I'm like, <sighs> like, <laughs> death aside, I understand the comeuppance at the end that yeah. he deserves. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of moments with him that I'm, make me cringe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Ari Aster is quite a master at trauma stabbing, basically. And yeah. on one hand, I am impressed with his ability to do so. On the other hand, I can't wait for a movie of his that isn't doing it because it does make me wonder, like, why do you enjoy doing this to people so much? Yeah. And are you okay? <laughs> I don't know if he enjoy- – I think well, I think he does enjoy doing it to people. But I think I think that's a testament to um, an honest artist that you can look at yourself and say – because, I mean, he talks about this film being a response to a breakup that he went through. So sure. that maybe he was equal parts Danny and Christian and that he can honestly look at himself and say, I fucked up and this is the way – that I did. And I'm sure that the other person in the relationship did too. And this is what we both happened. And these were our faults. And the fact that he's not afraid to shy away from faults is what I really appreciate about his work. I agree with that. Yes. I, I especially agreed the, or I especially feel that Danny being a flawed character is one of the most cathartic aspects of this film because you see all the ugly bits of how you handle situations like this as well. It's, I think we've all been in there where we've said thank you and I'm sorry when we should have said I'm done and just walked yeah. away for a moment or give me some space. But she doesn't take that time for herself and part of it is conditioning. Part of it is she's got to learn it. Yeah. Well, and I think when you have somebody like Danny who's taking care of a sister that's not well. She right. was probably the one that has been the tentpole of the family as the go-between, I'm assuming, between her sister and her parents to make mm-hmm. sure that things are amicable. Um, and then, you know, there's that whole attachment theory where she, where Danny is this anxious attachment type and uh, Christian is the avoidant attachment type. And they are, for whatever reason, they find each other because they solidify the other's faults and mistakes like oh i'm anxious so i always find people that pull away from me but you have this person that's pulling away and then Mm -hmm. if you have this person who is a puller away or a technical term um (laughs) (laughs) you know and then somebody latches on further you're like well yeah all people are clingy and it just it just yeah that's where that cycle gets perpetuated exactly that that codependent relationship that she had with christian that although yes of course at the moment that her family dies it's not the right moment to break up with somebody but 
we know that it's a few months down the line because it was snowing when the right. suicide happened and it they, they went in June. So yeah. there was plenty of time to say, hey, it's because I care for you that I think we need to have this talk. Yeah. And you know? and like for if, if he cared for himself too, to be like, hey, I can't take yes. on any of this anymore. Like I, it's not healthy for me to take on this trauma right now. I think you need somebody professionally to help you with this trauma. Yeah, for sure. Or her own friends. She has some. You see her talking yeah. to some of her friends and she latches onto her relationship with Christian instead. Yeah. And we don't know her upbringing. We don't know if that's just how she was raised, that your partner's supposed to be the one that knows all of your you know, dark uh, you know, parts and ugly bits. But it, it's uh, that's her flaw. That's her failure throughout the uh, course of her life, basically, is yeah. you know, she latches onto people that uh, basically use her or she has no say in their actions and the way they live. I mean, look at how her sister right. says, and mom and dad are joining me as right. if she's just decided this. You don't get to have parents. Right. Yeah. And knew that she couldn't do anything about it because she was at school. So I don't know how far away from school her, right. you know, her parents live. So, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that hit me real hard because it's clear that Danny also has anxiety disorders. I don't know yes. the medicine she was taking, but it's either anxiety or maybe she was also uh, depressed or has bipolar. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how with Ari Aster's characters, he really shows you how, okay, we have somebody with a condition. He did this with hereditary as well. We mm -hmm. have a, a, a family history of schizophrenia. Right. It, but it's all true in that movie. So the schizophrenia did not contribute to the fact that their family were in a cult and that they worshipped this demonic god. <laughs> right, Paimon. You know, yeah, the Paimon yeah. was going to Paimon, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and Danny has just as many emotional spikes as her sister, but Danny lacks some of that selfishness because she has this self-loathing that comes mm. of hers, and she's more subservient with it. So you have yeah. two completely different people who respond in a different way with it because she's like, I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. But what's really important is to not help others to the degree that you're not helping yourself. Right. And that is a theme throughout the whole film. Yeah. Just about every character has that moment where they, if they're a very helpful character, they kind of spread themselves too thin. Yeah. I, I think the only one who has a direct line of of focus is josh because he knows that he's gonna finish that dissertation and it's a very selfish line of devotion yeah, it's but it's fault. right but it's very much like he is all about himself like he's gonna get this dissertation done he's gonna finish this he's gonna see the other festivals this is what he wants to do and he's mm -hmm. very tunnel vision about it so it's yeah well, what I love about him, too, is if you consider, you know, a cultural reading about, you know, African-American uh, just life, mm -hmm. especially in this very white space as well, he has to. He has to yeah. make sure that he, he just digs in and pushes everybody out of the way and tells everybody what he's doing. And yeah, it now in his own personality, he is naturally selfish. So he does take right. it too far. Like there was no reason for him to take a photo after they told him not to. Right. And. I think it was just an excuse on their part to like, ah, this is a good moment <laughs> to get rid of this guy because they were probably yeah. going to kill him anyway. But I did really enjoy how they explore that through Christian showing like this is the type of shit that Josh has to deal with with all of his waspy little friends. 
and they don't take him seriously and they just see him as some nerd who's always working and he's like when the fuck have you worked a day in your goddamn life though yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah no it's the dynamic between all the characters is so interesting and it's so well done yeah and then somebody like mark too i you kind of wonder how he ended up with them like yeah was he just a friend of one of them through maybe elementary school, high school, and they just happened to go to college together? Or like, how did he fall in with these guys who are very studious? I mean, Christian, maybe not so much, but I think he he can play up that he is studious, but. It could be a mix of friends too. I think Christian could be the glue that binds them together. And Josh is just tolerating this crap the entire time. Yeah. But it's funny that um, I wonder, I think the party is in, I don't know if it's specifically in Mark's apartment at the beginning, but when they're speaking about, um, you know, going to Sweden, mm-hmm. behind Mark is a picture of the s- scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz, who is <gasps> wanting nice. a brain. And I find that very, I, I find that really comical <laughs> that that's behind him. There are a lot of those images, actually. Yes. I, I got to watch it again because I also caught the Goldilocks and the bear in yep. Danny's apartment. Yeah, yeah, lots of lots of imagery. Um, I think there's a picture when she's crying of um, there's like a, a a village scene behind her as one of the paintings or the art that she has on the wall, and just and just what he does with his foreground and and background space, where even just them speaking, you know, Danny and Christian through the mirrors at each other, and you're seeing art yes. in the background, and but you're seeing, but you're, but she's not looking Christian directly in the eye; she's looking at him through the mirror. I think is very mm-hmm. interesting too. Yeah, and I feel that a kind of summation of all the points that we've been making comes to one concept that I don't have a single theorist for this because this is a this comes from quite a few people, mm-hmm. but one of the reasons that it's cited that beauty is often stepped aside or walked around in academia as a topic is because for some philosophical viewpoints, it's considered a very destructive aesthetic Hmm. because there's a lot of political power involved in beautiful objects. If you think of anything that royalty has ever purchased that we can consider objectively beautiful or are the things that empires have built and stuff. And all these are power plays. These are things that cannot be achieved by certain classes. These are only available for those who have the eye and the brain and the the pure genes in order to understand them, things like that. Mm. They're, they're definitely hidden away. So it's been considered in a political and, and or sociopolitical sense to be a very almost antagonistic form for a lot of readings. But I love that this film really shows that yes he's used the beauty in the most destructive way possible by distracting you throughout the entirety of the film he puts every trick that he knows with the camera to just make you go whoa as you're watching it he adds subtle but very well done effects and on top of that you have all of these just basic geniuses he has from you know the costume design art design the, the bear suit, all these little things, these visual geniuses, these artists to bring to life their art in the worst place imaginable. <laughs> and in a way that if you were to get caught up in it and distracted, you have Danny and Christian situation that yeah. your own life becomes secondary or actually, no, that, that was the problem. You start to introspect 
a little bit right. because with beauty is contemplation. But if you're around it all the time and you're introspecting, are you really paying attention to the ways people are manipulating you? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think also beauty is very subjective. It, it just like art itself, like w- mm-hmm. what your taste is and what you find attractive, not just in people, but in, you know, in life and things and art is very subjective. So it's really hard from a philosophical standpoint to pinpoint, you know, when you're trying to existentially figure out the meanings of, of how the earth is operating, you can't right. pinpoint something like beauty. You can't say, well, that's beautiful. You you can, but somebody else might say, well, you know, I think it, you know. It fell flat for me, you know? It's a definite ongoing debate because it depends on which train of philosophy you come from. For instance, if you come from Immanuel Kant, he had a very rigid – beauty is the objective feeling that we have. And then Mm. he lists all kinds of different subcategories. So, for instance, a matter of taste, he would call something that's agreeable. So, it's agreeable to me, but maybe it's not agreeable to you. Like, you just can't stand it. But – when we get to beauty, I guess he's more talking about a universal feeling more than mm. what causes things to be beauty or beautiful okay. to us. So I think we can all agree that if we see something we find beautiful, right, we could easily communicate what we felt just from sounds and expression. And we go, oh, yes, I know things that make me feel that way, too. Right. Yeah. This like inner elation. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And that's definitely the heart of this podcast as well, because I agree somewhat with that subjective realm. I'm still trying to find my own opinion on that one. Cause right. I mean, we, we are talking about an opinion that was formed in the 1700s by a German dude. So a very, you know, wealthy German dude. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so there's definite like political and, and social economical background that needs to be uh, considered the way academia was back then was yeah very controlled gentleman's club. So it's interesting to see how it has evolved. Whereas if you go farther back, you have just people going, well, it doesn't matter what you find beautiful. Let's just celebrate it and just scream to the rooftops and just show like, you know, you'll be walking down the street and somebody just goes like, oh, oh, I'm like what? It's like this dog is the best dog I've ever <laughs> seen. And just drop to their knees, you know, <laughs> way too expressive uh, for modern standards. But back then they really wanted to celebrate the fact that they had this feeling and they have to share it with everybody else so that they know. Yeah. I love that. Let's bring that back. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping to do. That's what I, I want us to just, ah, oh, in the cinemas more than we're, you know, picking right? fun at it, you know? Yeah. Be gone the era of throwing popcorn at the screen. Unless, no. unless I know. the it's killer just, gets it. <laughs> especially because, because I think now what we're reckoning with in horror is that we're being recognized as a genre that contributes, right? Yeah. Like, like we haven't been contributing this whole freaking time, but <laughs> <laughs> which I could, you want me on that soapbox, I'll be here for another five hours. But, <laughs> but like, you know, people like Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, Jordan Peele, they're coming in with this, what the outer, we call the muggles, they're not horror people, <laughs> um, this highbrow, high art horror and i don't i i hate that term because i don't think mm-hmm. it's a fair term because there's so much symbolism and there's so much to unpack in something like midsummer but in a movie like the stuff which had a far less yeah. budget or you know something like invasion of the body snatchers from mm-hmm. the 50s all of these things have the same amount of layers to unpack they're just in a different package yeah Different packages, different times. Yeah. I mean, one of my first articles when I jumped on the sort of critics scene uh-huh. uh, was about 
you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th and looking into the my kind of interpretation on a from a particular perspective of right. what sort of meaning we can glean from the way that these characters wear masks. And if you hear the majority of people saying like, oh, yeah, Friday the 13th is fun, but kind of stupid. And that's about as far as their descriptions of it go. I'm like, I don't know. There are characters in the movie that actually have emotions and care about things. Even that guy, Jason, has a, a motive. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> and you can find beauty in those, too. I mean, just yeah. it's a it's a grittier aesthetic, but there it's still something beautiful about the fact that the grit was captured in the way that it was by Toby Hooper or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and grit and stuff. That, that's what I really... I'm loving to talk about, uh, and I, I thank you so much for you know bringing your perspective on this. Now we've got a more traditionally visually beautiful film, but there's right. enough emotional grit in this, and I think that Astor yeah. did a great job of switching that on its head. You know, most of your gritty visual films tend to either be slow mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in a kind of wow, this is an old movie kind of way, or they're very fun. Mm-hmm. You know, that they tend to have a different tone than the grit that you see on screen. And if they do both, they are usually a mixed bag. You know, that's when you have love or hate kind of relationships to those films. And look at Midsummer. You have yet another one where you have that just, it breaks apart everything so much with the two that I don't think a lot of people even know what to feel. So they just go, I don't know. I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's too complicated to think about today. Yeah, I hear. And I wonder if this is because of, of the way that the film ends and the way that a lot of men have been portrayed throughout the film. But I find mm-hmm. that a lot of men don't like this film or or yeah. feel very uncomfortable watching this film. I know my boyfriend gets very uncomfortable when he watches this film. He likes it, but he doesn't know right. why. <laughs> He'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, maybe they should. Uh, yeah. you know, everybody does, as you were saying earlier, everybody does things that they shouldn't to other people, even right. if they mean well. Right. Stuff slips out of your mouth. You're going to get nervous. You're going to try and be caring. Or sometimes you just don't care. And instead mm-hmm. of just telling that person, not right now, I can't deal with you, we'll just go, oh, yeah, that's so sad. Yeah. And you create more toxicity because that person's clearly picking up on the fact that you didn't want to have them around. Yeah. But you didn't have the decency to tell them. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, gosh, this film. I could. I love this film so much. There's just so much to unpack with it. And I'm so happy that we get to like nerd out about it. <laughs> and I'm very happy to have been able to do so with you. Were there any final uh, observations or comments you wanted to bring up before we wrap up? Hmm. I think we hit a lot of... A lot of the really high points. Um, Yeah, I guess final thought would be that um, the Blood Eagle is my favorite Viking death. I think it is one of the most creative. So I was super happy when when I saw that on the screen. And also seeing this, the fertility ceremony collectively with other people uh, was very fun to watch in a theater. (laughs) Yes. Uh, For those of you who have not seen Midsummer, I... Once the pandemic has finally left us and it's safe to be around people, or if you're all vaccinated and you're going to wear masks, please try to find some people that you can watch this with that haven't seen it before either, just to feel the energy in the room, yeah. especially in this scene. <laughs> a lot of nervous giggling, a lot of yes. like, should I be laughing at this? Or like, what What should I be feeling? <laughs> Take your mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a That's a whole, you know what? That could be a sport. Go do that. Yeah. <laughs> nice bonding moment. Exactly. And uh, if 
we've learned anything uh, from Ariaster, it's that there are a lot of ways that we fail to bond. And so yeah. at least there's some really good bonding in this movie. Yeah. Well, I'm interested because his next film is apparently going to be a horror comedy. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what that's going to be. Me too. Because I can see him doing that really well. He's a very humorous filmmaker. Yes. Uh, yeah. Know, even Hereditary, as bleak as it is, there are moments that I can smile because there's like this dark. If you've ever been that cynical, that dark, yeah. then you can see when Annie's making some comments of like, <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I want to know what Ari Aster thinks comedy is next. Yeah, I'm curious because, I mean, there's even some funny moments in Midsummer too. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't get Will Poulter in there and not use his uh, expertise the way they did. Oh, my gosh, I know. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to wrap up then. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including... Bodies of Horror, hosted by Nicole Goebel, The Scream Teens, hosted by Gory Corey and Lena, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic or for the page of Beauty of Horror itself, which is at beautyhorrorpod. And you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. Thank you again to Jolene for bringing this wonderful film to the table. And so for those who are listening, where can they find you? And is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah. So you guys can find me on Instagram. I'm at Jolene Marie underscore designs. So Jolene is like the Dolly Parton song, the way that you spell that. And I'm on Twitter at Joe Marie design, just J O. And um, you can find me over at to die for podcast. That's D Y E on Twitter and Instagram. And um, I have a few virtual lectures coming up, but I don't know if they'll be out by the time or they, they might pass by the time we do this, but um, you can keep an eye on my website. I do some virtual lectures as well about fashion history and uh the next time you can see me if you are in the states is for the joe bob's jamboree weekend in july exciting stuff so be sure to check all those things out i'm sure most of you are checking out the last drive-in I, I you know there's a lot of fanfare on twitter but definitely check out the to die for podcast you will not be disappointed and of course thank you dear listener for joining us in talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible it's not beauty, uh...